All right, this is a, an oral history interview with Robert L. Downen for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. Uh, we're in my home uh, in Washington, D.C. today, and this is Thursday, December 27th, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Uh, let's start out with uh, your first awareness of Senator Dole and uh, maybe leading into your first contact with him. Well, as a native Kansan uh, from Wichita, born and raised in Wichita, of course, I knew of Senator Dole uh, for many years. Uh, I came to Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1973 to work on my master's degree at George Washington University. And uh, I was uh, majoring in politics and international affairs, and I was frankly on the lookout for some kind of a job, internship, whatever, that might give me an early start on my career. So uh, I actually went to the university employment office and they said, well, interesting, you're from Kansas, guess what? We have uh, an opportunity that came in the door here last week. They're looking for someone to work on Senator Bob Dole's staff, uh, uh, part-time or full-time. Do you think that's something you'd be interested in? And of course my reaction was absolutely. So I went up for an interview, uh, met with actually Joanne Coe, who was his uh, administrative assistant at that time. And to make a long story short, uh, they decided to hire me um, uh, as a research uh, assistant, uh, very junior, uh, very young. I think I was 22 at the time. And um, I began work in his office, I'll never forget the date because it was my sister's birthday, November 5th, 1973. And I can still recall uh, the first time meeting the senator, he came out of his office, uh, extended his left hand as was his custom. And um, I was rather proud of myself knowing that uh, he did not shake hands. I, I extended my left hand, most people extend their right hand and and he's very comfortable shaking that way, of course. Mm -hmm. But I extended my left hand, he extended his left hand, and um, that was our first first meeting. Um, very soon thereafter, I was asked if I would be willing to be his driver. As it turned out, the apartment that I was living in was two blocks from the Watergate uh, residence where he lived. Uh, of course, he had, was recently divorced at that time, and so was living by himself at the Watergate residence. And uh, the convenience factor was very, very important, uh, I think, for him. Uh, he did not drive himself at that time, uh, told me because uh, he was afraid that he might have a flat tire sometime and, of course, wouldn't be able to, to deal with it. So he customarily had a uh, staff member who would pick him up every morning drive him to the office, and stay as late as necessary to take him home at the end of the day. And then, of course, nearly every weekend he flew back to Kansas for constituent uh, contact uh, purposes. So the, the staff driver had to be on call at all times on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to take him to the airport, pick him up. And I did that for the first year and a half that I worked for him. So that uh, during the day while I was in the office, I handled constituent mail and uh, legislative research projects. 
but I think I was proudest of the fact that I had been asked to be his personal driver. And that, that facilitated a sort of bonding relationship, which uh, I know many staff members were, were envious of because they simply didn't have the face time. Uh, he was such a busy person, spent a good deal of his time in his personal office, and they, uh, most staffers just simply didn't have the face time with him. This gave me uh, a good half an hour every morning, uh, a half an hour every evening, and then on weekends when I went to the airport, often we went out to Dulles Airport, so it was a 45-minute drive out to the airport, and on Sunday evenings when he came back in, typically very tired after spending a weekend in Kansas, we'd have a 45-minute drive back home, and I found these to be very uh, personable moments when he would open up and sort of uh, uh, ruminate and, and um, um, talk very candidly about things that were on his mind, maybe things that were bothering him, news events that had happened maybe over the weekend, and really open up and talk about his personal feelings about a lot of issues. And I felt very privileged to, to have that kind of relaxed uh, uh, relationship and that he you know, felt confident enough in my discretion that I would not repeat things that he said. Right. I'm going to pause here just for a second. Um, as, as you <laughs> described this um, being with the senator uh, and the hours and whatnot, did you have anything like a private life uh, of your own going on at the same time or not? <laughs> well, actually, uh, it's interesting you asked that question. The senator was kind enough to allow me to keep his car uh, at, at night and on weekends because it was actually more convenient that way uh, for me to go and pick him up. But as a result, uh, I did have free use of his car on the weekends, and I actually took my future wife-to-be on our first date in the senator's car. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, we've laughed about that many times over the years. She was very impressed. She thought it was my car. Uh, <laughs> and of course, not that it was uh, uh, all that elegant. I think it was a uh, Chevrolet Laguna. But it was a new one, and certainly something I could not have afforded at that age. <laughs> when did you fess up? <laughs> <laughs> After we were married. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you say that the, the senator opened up. Were there times when he uh, just, you got the feeling just really wanted just to be quiet, and you drive, and he'd snooze or ruminate? You know, uh, Really, no, because the senator had such an active mind. I mean, his mind was always going, and I think it took a while for him to wind down after spending a, a week uh, with constituents out in Kansas, coming back on Sunday night. Tired though he was, his mind was still racing, and so he was uh, contemplating and ruminating on things that uh, he had had to deal with over the weekend and of course at the end of the day when we would be driving home after a full day in the Senate office some of the issues that you know had been on the floor that day that he'd had to deal with but particularly because that was the era of the Watergate scandal and you know from late 73 until 
August of 74, there were daily bombshells uh, about the unfolding Watergate scandal. And the senator was, I think, so perplexed in some ways and bothered and perhaps even irritated by the unfolding events, none of which he had personally been aware of. But as someone who had been so loyal to President Nixon for so many years and who had uh, entrusted so much of his personal political career to the, to the uh, prospects of the Nixon administration, it was clearly a very bothersome thing. And to a man who still had ambitions, uh, you know, Dole was in his uh, uh, late 40s, early 50s during this period, he had clearly a, a, a very bright political future ahead of him. And I just remember generally, um, you know, the daily sort of almost thinking out loud as we would drive home at the end of the day. And he, he, would, he would wonder at the unfolding events and the negative repercussions for those Republicans like himself who had stood by the president and been so loyal for so long. And I think was ruminating in his own mind about what the longer-term implications might be for those who had stood by the president. And I do remember a comment that the senator made publicly, uh, probably along about November or December of 73. Um, he said, you know, uh, some of us Republicans are going to have to start wearing steel helmets. There are so many coconuts that are dropping on us uh, day to day that uh, we're, we're just not prepared for. I think that's really the way he felt. It was, uh, there were just uh, so many totally uh, unknown things that were surfacing about the way the 72 presidential campaign had been conducted. And for someone like Dole, uh, who had not been directly involved in many of those, th uh, those events and decisions, but had been chairman of the Republican National Committee, there clearly were implications for him personally and for his professional future. And, you know, I, I was very impressed at the extent of, of concern that the senator had during those dark days about what the repercussions would be for his own political career. And seeing him up close like that during that period, uh, you got no inkling that he was at all to be implicated in that downfall? Not at all, not at all. You know, it was so clear publicly and privately, I think, that he had been shut out of so much of the decision-making during the 72 re-election campaign, uh, those decisions being made by the committee to re-elect the president, which Dole later termed CREEP, uh, based on the acronym, that he had been shut out and... Um, and I, I, I'm sure he must have found that very annoying and even offensive at the time. But of course, as developments later, uh, later occurred, it was actually to his advantage that he had not been intimate to many of those decisions that were, that were made during the re-election campaign. And ultimately, you know, there had to be a certain distancing, I think, of the senator from the Nixon administration so that by the time the president resigned in August of 74, 
there was enough daylight between the two men that uh, the residual implications for the senator were far less than they would have been had the senator been closer to the president uh, during the 72 re-election campaign. Did at <clears throat> some points his, his real exasperation uh, with things really unfold for you? I mean, did he get a little ballistic there in the car with you or, or not? In terms of the Watergate mm -hmm. events? Yeah. He was, he was uh, the senator certainly had uh, a, a, a temper, but uh, I didn't detect that on the Watergate. It was more of a, a regretfulness and a, an annoyance, uh, you know, why, why hadn't President Nixon been more forthcoming with those of us that were rallying to his defense? We believed the president when he said he had not been involved in, in any of the events that led to the Watergate caper. We defended the president. We put our political reputations on the line. And, uh, you know, we were, uh, we were uh, blindsided. I think probably that, that's the best way to sum up what I felt the senator's feelings were during that period. Any particular quotes from, from him that uh, you could share in terms of uh, the Watergate time? I probably have some notes somewhere. Uh, you know, I, I realized at the time what a historic uh, uh, event this was. I may have kept some, some notes. Uh, uh, I don't know where they would be, but uh, I, you know, I just, I just really uh, recall the sense that, uh, you know, the comment, of course, about the, 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 the coconuts dropping and the steel helmets. Uh, a sense that, you know, many Republicans felt they had to maybe not run for cover, but they had to protect themselves. And it was a re regrettable set of circumstances for everyone involved. And the, uh, the senator clearly had longer-term political ambitions. We, we know now in retrospect. Uh, and he, he had to be ruminating on a daily basis about uh, how he could... Uh, uh, circumvent and survive this set of circumstances, uh, which ultimately he, he handled very well. Talk about the dynamics in the car, just for a moment. Um, <clears throat> would you wait for him to go first, uh, and did he solicit uh, your input? Sort of what went on? Uh, most often he would initiate the conversation. It was really, I would call it thinking out loud, reflecting out loud. Uh, um, occasionally I would bring something up if there had been a legislative uh, issue on the floor that day, particularly uh, if it was something that I had been involved in doing some research on or something, I would, I would raise the issue. And, uh, you know, and he'd make some, some, some commentary uh, about... Uh, his role. Uh, I began to write floor statements for him at that time. He was typically very appreciative uh, of members of his staff who, you know, did the the uh, fundamental research and the writing that helped him develop a profile as time went by in certain legislative areas. I always found him very grateful, very appreciative, very complimentary of material that I had prepared for him. 
And so any opportunity I had to sort of raise a subject which might help to um, cultivate a compliment, why I didn't, didn't pass up the opportunity. But most of the time, these, these reflections on Watergate, uh, reflections on his looming, to the senator's looming reelection campaign in 74, these were, um, these were things that I just think were in the forefront of his mind and in a way, you know, he was going home to an empty apartment. In a, in, in a way, he was just sort of opening up and, and, and just, just thinking out loud about things that were really in the forefront of his mind. And I just felt so honored to be in his confidence in that way because he knew I would not repeat any of this to other staff members or or, or anyone. This was just a, a personal uh, uh, shared uh, uh, relationship and bonding experience between the two of us that, that I value so much. And you got the job of being driver. How did that happen? Well, again, because I lived two blocks from the Watergate uh, and it was just such a simple thing, I was able to park his car at my apartment complex, hop in the car in the morning. I would wait for a phone call saying that he was ready to go in. And I'd hop in the car, go over, pick him up. It was uh, usually about a 30-minute drive in. And uh, he was always typically very chipper and upbeat and, and um, very positive in the mornings. But at the end of a long day, and the senator did work long days, and I would often be sitting at my desk, <laughs> very hungry, not having had dinner, but I would wait until he was ready to go home, and quite often it was 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. At the end of the day, he was very tired, um, as one might expect, and uh, you know the mood was not as chipper as it had been in the mornings. Uh, my mood wasn't as chipper either. <laughs> but uh, it was an opportunity to see uh, a side of the senator uh, that... Uh, I certainly would not have, have had access to otherwise. So how long did this go on for? That went on for a year and a half, uh, from November of, when I was first hired, November of 73, until about uh, early 75, soon after he was reelected to his second term in the Senate. And at that point, I was promoted to legislative assistant. And I began ha uh, by handling a number of domestic policy issues. Senator served on certain committees, the Postal Rate uh, Committee, Senate Postal Rate Committee. Uh, so I handled post postage-related issues for him. Uh, he, he also continued to be very constituent-focused in terms of, um, of uh, oh, uh, public uh, uh, utility uh, issues. So I handled a lot of the uh, Kansas uh, public works projects, Corps of Engineer uh, construction projects, legislation uh, related to that, earmarks for uh, uh, spending for Kansas projects. And I did that through the uh, 76 presidential campaign where he ran for vice president. And then after that, uh, I, I guess you'd say was again promoted to handling national issues and was given the portfolio of the foreign policy and national security uh, legislative issues uh, which the senator 
decided that he wanted to have a profile on every single national issue that came before the Senate. And I had, I had actually majored in foreign policy and international affairs at George Washington University. So I was delighted to finally be given uh, that portfolio to work with for the senator. Was that graduate work you were doing, or was yes. this your BA? No, that was a master's degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just curious, what was your, did you do a master's thesis, or did you have a study area? Or I did. I, I actually finished my master's degree in May of 75. Uh, so I was working full-time for the senator during the day, taking all my classes in the evening, and uh, then would come, come into the Senate office on weekends and type my master's uh, dissertation on the Senate typewriter because I didn't have my own typewriter. So uh, it really was a seven-day-a-week job for me in, in, in many respects. But I did my master's uh, thesis on... Um, actually uh, uh, the Korean War period and uh, United States relations with China and Northeast Asia. So later on, as I was able to work with the senator on China-Taiwan issues, Korea issues, it, it blended very well with the graduate work that I had recently completed at the university. Let's go back a bit. Um, any reminiscences about that 74 campaign because it was pretty rough and tumble out in Kansas. It was a brutal campaign which no one I think was certain uh, how the campaign would turn out or how the election would turn out. Um, I did not uh, travel or work with him in the state during that campaign so like everyone else I just sort of followed it uh, through secondhand information and none of us were sure we would have a job. Uh, come January of 75 because it wasn't at all clear he would be reelected. It was a tough race. Uh, we, we got certain snippets and, and inside perspective through our fellow uh, staffers and uh, campaign aides that did travel with the senator through the state. But I, I, I can only recall that there was a lot of trepidation and concern as to whether he would, would win that election, and of course he did, but by a very narrow margin. But you would see him coming back from a weekend of campaigning yes. and be picking him up and whatnot. Were uh, any, any particularly vivid memories of his coming back and sort of reporting things himself? Or Just that he was exhausted. It was an extremely grueling campaign. He was always exhausted. Uh, I would, you know, I had the, the general recollection and sense that there was definitely concern on his part as to how this was going to end up. But um, I didn't have any, any special uh, insight or information as to, uh, you know, his, his uh, reactions to things that were happening in the state. Uh, I don't recall anything of that sort. I know people have always wondered how much he involved himself in the quote-unquote dirty tactics of that campaign against Dr. Mm. Bill Roy. Yeah. Um, so you don't have anything to add there? I don't have any insight. <clears throat> my, my clear sense is that, uh, that he did not. It was not typical of the man. Uh, Senator Dole uh, was always an extremely uh, decent I would say highly moral and ethical person, and you know I base this on on 
things that I saw and heard in, in private on a personal basis. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a side of the man that was hard, and his staff certainly saw it, but he, he never struck me as the type of person who would engage in anything of what might be termed dirty, dirty tricks, dirty politics. That just was not his, his manner or his style. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Let's, let's he did. A, he, of course, he had a you know the, the jugular wit, and I think everyone has has heard the uh, the anecdote, uh, the 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 uh, little uh, commentary that uh, he would give during that um, to to audiences during that campaign. He'd say, you know, Doctor Bill, this Doctor Bill, that. If we elect this man to the Senate, we'll all have a big doctor bill for the next six months, for the next six years. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought that was a, you know typical of his uh, rapier wit that he would would come up with something like that. I thought that was so funny. Um, what about insights in terms of his running uh, as the vice presidential candidate? Yes. Well, uh, the senator. I think, uh, felt that he was very much in the back seat of that campaign. You know, the presidential campaign is typically run by, run out of the Oval Office when it's a sitting president that's running for re-election. The senator, I'm sure, felt extremely honored and grateful to be on the ticket. But my sense is that uh, he felt very much that others were in the driver's seat and that, you know, he took his cues as typically running mates do as to what they should say and how they should say it. Um, uh, I remember that he, you know, termed his job during that election as uh, indoor work with no heavy lifting and... uh, uh, he also said that uh, you know while the president was in the rose garden, he was uh, he was out in the uh, in the jungle dealing with the uh, the uh, the difficult tasks that a running mate often has to deal with, and that's true. President Ford, in a sense, did run from the rose garden as a as an incumbent, and uh, I think a a. Uh, a duty or responsibility was given to the senator to to be uh, on the front line, uh, uh, on the attack, on the offensive, to uh, defend the record of the Ford administration and to uh, launch the uh, uh, rhetorical assault on the Democratic opposition. Now, at that point, were you still driving? I, I lost a little track no, of that. No, I, I, I no longer drove after uh, would have been uh, early 75. At that point, uh, a younger, uh, perhaps more energetic <laughs> uh, staffer was hired, Dick Friedemann, uh, who uh, is today an attorney in Kansas, if you have an opportunity to talk with him. Dick Friedemann became his driver, and I passed the keys uh, as it were, to Dick, and uh, was simply a full-time uh, senior legislative assistant on the senator's staff. Were there regrets giving up that? Uh... There, in the sense that uh, it, I no longer had uh, the same 
degree of personal face time with the senator. Like everyone else, when there was a legislative issue that came before the Senate that, that I had the responsibility for supporting the senator on, uh, you know, I'd have uh, whatever time was required to work through that issue with the senator. But I didn't have that, that, that level of, of, of intimate uh, uh, conversation with the senator that we had had prior to that. Although I have to say, you know, in retrospect, uh, I have felt all these years since, 30 years since, that the senator had never forgotten or lost his appreciation for um, the, the time that we had together. Uh, he has always been extremely supportive of me anytime I needed a recommendation or a reference of any sort. And as recently as last week, I understand he gave a speech at George Washington University and told the audience, and unfortunately I was not there to hear it myself, but he told the audience that uh, one of their fellow alumni graduates, Bob Downen, had uh, handled the China-Taiwan issue for him in 78. For him to remember something like that and to give credit, uh, even knowing that I was not there, is just so typical of Senator Dole. Right. So you mentioned to me um, that following the 76 uh, campaign, he be, you, you had the strong sense he began to set his sights on a presidential run of his own in 80, and that's when he began to take interest in a much broader spectrum of issues. So talk a little bit about Particularly that. Particularly on the national level. Prior to that, he, he had been the junior senator from Kansas. And the responsibility of a junior senator from any state is to take care of their constituents. But the 76 campaign, his selection uh, to run as President Ford's uh, running mate, really catapulted him to a, a level of, of uh, uh, public awareness, uh, gave him a public profile, which he had not had up to that point, and he recognized the potential for that. And I still recall so well uh, when he came back to the office after uh, the disappointing defeat in November of 76 that he told the staff um, that he wanted to stake out a position on every single legislative issue that came before the Senate from that point forward. And that was something that he had never shown an inclination for to my uh, awareness prior to the 76 campaign. And the other thing was uh, I remember that um, he, he told the staff that he wanted to position himself as an accommodator. Um, you know, on any given issue that comes before Congress, there are ideological and partisan uh, divisiveness uh, and I think it really bothered the senator that during the 76 campaign he had been given the the name hatchet man by the news media that came out of that famous television debate with Walter Mondale the Democrat wars etc cetera, etc cetera. and he was he was uh, uh, stuck with the name hatchet man and you know, that was not the senator. He, he had a razor-sharp wit, and he certainly knew how to put down people with inflated egos, but he was not a hatchet man. So coming back to my point, I think 
that was the reason that he, he, he told the staff, I want to become known henceforth as the accommodator. I want to be the senator who comes up with the, the middle ground, the compromise solution that will bring the extremes, the ideologues on both, both wings and the Democrats and the Republicans bring, brings them together uh, on, a, on a compromise that will allow us to actually produce policy of benefit to the American people. He wanted to be known as the great accommodator. Um, it seems to me in retrospect that was a very worthy ambition. Uh, he certainly had his sights set clearly. He wanted to broaden his base in preparation for the 1980 presidential campaign. What, what, um, what uh, ran afoul of that uh, was the emergence of Ronald Reagan and the, the, the surging right-wing influence on the Republican Party after the 76 uh, defeat. Uh, Ronald Reagan, clearly early in 77, was the man that Dole, I think, felt was his chief competition for the nomination in 1980. And so in order to keep up with Reagan in terms of an appeal to the right wing of the Republican Party, he could not, in, 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 in many respects, he could not afford to be the great accommodator that he really wanted to be. He was pulled to the right in order to try to stay abreast of the Reagan juggernaut, which was picking up speed very quickly on issues like the Panama Canal Treaty and Korea and uh, uh, Taiwan, China, all of these foreign policy issues which began to emerge very large in 77 and 78, which Reagan took a very early profile uh, with, and the senator had to, uh, could not afford the alienation of the right wing of the Republican Party on issues like that. So to a certain extent, he was pulled back towards right of center because he wanted that nomination in 1980. It, <clears throat> going back to his wanting to be the conciliator, um, it would seem to me that would be a strong position to take if you had your sights set on being majority or minority leader, because that's obviously part of yes. what goes with that territory. Not necessarily a winning strategy for becoming president of the United States. And I guess <clears throat> with Reagan looming on the scene, that proves the point, doesn't it, in a way? Well, it does, although, you know, you, you have to keep this in perspective. In the 1970s, it had been so many years since the Republicans had controlled either House of Congress. Democrats have been in control of both the House of Representatives and the Senate for many, many, many years. The very idea of the Republicans regaining the majority in the Senate, I think, was, was probably considered uh, a, a very long shot. And it wasn't until you know, some years later that that actually happened. Whether the senator, uh, you know, had his sights set on being majority leader at that point, um, I can't say, but it seems to me that from what I saw working on his personal staff, that his ambitions were set on being the Republican Party's nominee for president in 1980. 
Um, you mentioned three major uh, international issues that came up that you were central on, on uh, yes. working with, all of which, if my memory serves, uh, were initiated by the Carter administration. Yes. So maybe we should start this discussion a little bit with what Dole's and your perspective was on the Carter administration, <coughs> in particular in terms of foreign affairs. And, and I should begin by saying that Senator Dole had never had any sort of profile, nationally or statewide, on foreign policy issues, or particularly on national security issues, although there were some exceptions there. But he did not serve on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, it was not a large agenda item for him prior to 1976. But the 76 campaign experience certainly began to pull him into the orbit of foreign American foreign policy making, and he clearly knew that if he was to have a future national profile that he had to develop some stature in that area. So it became very clear to, to all of us on his staff, and much to my own delight, that he wanted to stake out a uh, profile for himself on major foreign policy and national security issues. During the 76 presidential campaign, candidate Jimmy Carter had, uh, had suggested several, for what in those days was very startling, uh, foreign policy initiatives. He said that uh, uh, he, w he would not pretend, as previous administrations had, that uh, the Republic of China on Taiwan was the real China. It was time for the United States to switch relations so that we would establish relations with the People's Republic of China, which of course in those days was known as Red China or Communist China. And I think that was a major concern to, to uh, not just uh, conservatives, but to a lot of American people who had vested interests in trade relations and the stability and security of Taiwan, and also those who just simply could not see breaking relations with a democratic or emerging democratic society in order to establish them with a communist nation. The other thing was Jimmy Carter said during the 76 presidential campaign that if he were elected he would withdraw U.S. troops from South Korea. He said uh, our troops had been there too long, there was no longer a need for them to be there, and it was time to bring those 40,000 American troops home from South Korea. Um, so naturally, uh, following the election, these were two of uh, two very prominent foreign policy initiatives uh, that were undertaken by the Carter administration, um, which uh, you know set conservatives in particular on fire. It was it was red meat. Uh, Ronald Reagan saw this, and he staked out a position for himself very early on issues like Korea and Taiwan. The other thing was the Panama Canal uh, debate. Uh, the United States had had a 99-year lease agreement with the Panamanian government uh, for the United States to lease and operate the Panama Canal. Uh, that lease was set to expire in 1999, 1997. That would be the, the end of the 99-year lease. Uh, even 20 years before that, 
uh, it was recognized that uh, the United States needed to begin to negotiate um, a uh, stable transition of the canal. The canal is, a, is a, even today, a very strategic asset to the security of the Western Hemisphere. So in 1977, <clears throat> the Carter administration very hurriedly and we felt carelessly negotiated uh, a transitional agreement with the government of then dictator Omar Torrios, president of Panama, that would stipulate that the United States would begin a gradual transition or handing over of the canal to the Panamanian government beginning as early as 1980, even though the lease was not set to expire until 97. Ronald Reagan jumped on this issue immediately, and I think the senator also saw it for what it was. It was, it was a red meat issue. It was something that concerned not only conservative Republicans, but also many mainstream, middle-of-the-road Americans. The idea of giving something that perhaps we never really owned, but to, to, to agree to transfer it back to a, what was then a, a dictatorial, tin horn, uh, Latin American uh, government uh, in a, a, a very carelessly worded uh, treaty was, uh, was anathema. And so the senator came to me and he said, you know, I want, I want a profile on this issue. I'm not sure how we're going to do it, but, you know, Ronald Reagan's on the front page of the newspaper every week on this issue. I want to, I want to have a profile on this issue. And uh, that was 1977. Um, the Senate was uh, expected to uh, have to provide its advice and consent under the Constitution to the treaty that had been negotiated by the Carter administration. We knew that this vote would probably come up either in late 77 or early 78. And uh, so he wanted to stake out a reputation. I took that and ran with it. I mean, it was a tremendous opportunity for a legislative staffer like myself to try to devise uh, a position for the senator. And after doing some research uh, on the history of, of uh, treaty making and the role of the Senate in uh, ratifying treaties that are negotiated by the, the White House, uh, I came up with the idea of uh, preparing some amendments uh, and understandings to the Panama Canal Treaty that the senator could offer. And uh, I, uh, I devoted a lot of time to drafting 10 amendments and two understandings. And the senator, Senator Dole, was the first out of the gate uh, with uh, proposed amendments to that treaty, as I recall, probably mid-summer of 77. And, uh, of course, in the months that followed, many other senators jumped on the bandwagon. Everybody wanted to have a profile on that issue. So other senators began offering amendments and, you know, the White House went ballistic. This was not supposed to happen. They wanted a straight up or down vote on the treaty that had been negotiated by, by the, the White House. But that was not to be. Under our Constitution, the Senate has the right to provide its advice and consent. And historically, the Senate uh, had often offered amendments in the past to 
bilateral treaties negotiated by the White House. But we were the first out of the gate with that. Um, uh, you know, I have to be quite honest to say that I think many Republicans wanted to, you know, thwart or, or defeat the treaty. They simply did not like the idea of handing the canal back to the Panamanians, at least not in the manner that was proposed. So some of these were, were, were frankly uh, designed to be ter terminal. Uh, they were amendments that were designed to, to basically uh, go back to the negotiating table and start over again, and perhaps to give the Senate a role in the negotiation process itself. Ultimately, that was not to be. Uh, by April of 78, uh, there was an up or down vote uh, on the treaty, but not until after many concessions had been made by the Panamanian government, many reassurances and understandings given that, uh, frankly, made for a far better agreement. Um, and today, we, of course, have returned the Panama, return the canal to the control of the Panamanian government, but in such a way that many of the United States national interests were genuinely protected uh, in the process, and we still have a uh, you know clear access to the to the canal today, which is so important to not only to commerce but to the transit of of our uh, 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 security vessels from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Um, did some of your work on amendments and understandings uh, survive and become part of that? Or My recollection is that the Senate, after much negotiation with the White House, uh, agreed to attach some understandings to the treaty. I don't believe we succeeded with any formal amendments to the treaty. But in the during those months of, of intense, intense debate uh, in the national media and in the Senate and between the White House and the Senate, there were reassurances given on paper over the signature of Omar Torrios, uh, things that uh, certainly um, uh, strengthened in many respects the uh, ultimate treaty. And had it not been for the early efforts of Senator Dole and, and others like him, uh, we would have had a much more slipshod, carelessly worded uh, agreement, and who knows where things might stand today. I should add, the senator and I went down to Panama in December of 1977 to meet with Omar Torrios. We went down with Senator Laxalt and one of his staff aides and spent uh, oh, close to a week, uh, as I recall, including a personal face-to-face uh, -face meeting between the two senators and General Omar Torrios. He was, he was also a general as well as the president. And um, Senator Dole uh, raised another peripheral issue that was of great concern to him in, in conjunction with the treaty, and that was um, information that we had received through our office, I believe we were the first office to receive it, that top-ranking officials in the Panamanian government were probably involved in drug trafficking, including drugs that were reaching the United States. 
this was based on some classified information that came to us through some, some highly placed U.S. intelligence sources that suggested that uh, 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 Noriega, who was at that time a high-ranking military officer in the Panamanian uh, regime, as well as uh, uh, Manuel Torrios, the brother of Omar Torrios, that he was personally involved in facilitating drug trafficking through Central America and, of course, receiving kickbacks from that. Some even suggested that Omar Torrios himself might be involved in the drug trafficking. But it was a major concern, and Senator Dole was the first member of Congress to raise this. Uh, the news media had not even been aware of it. Senator Dole received a lot of criticism, a lot of attack from the White House, from Democrats for having raised what some suggested was an irrelevant issue. Uh, we suggested it was not irrelevant because if this was a drug-dealing uh, cabal uh, with, that was operating with the uh, uh, approval or, uh, uh, you know, uh, semi-approval of the government of Panama, uh, we felt that that was relevant to the issue of handing over a vital national security asset like the canal to a government of that sort. So I do remember that when we went down to Panama and met with Omar Torrios, Senator Dole raised this eyeball to eyeball with President Torrios. He said, are members of your government involved in drug trafficking that uh, includes transit to the United States? And Omar Torrios, who, as I recall, sat there with a glass of scotch or something, uh, scotch or brandy, uh, said, Senator Dole, if I find out that my brother is involved in drug trafficking, I myself will put him in jail. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Um, the issue eventually led to a secret closed session of the Senate. Um, I was told only the second time in the history of the United States Senate where all 100 members of the Senate were brought to the floor. The doors were closed and locked. No news media present. Only a select group of staffers, and for two days the Senate discussed and debated this drug issue. A special report was prepared by the Drug Enforcement Agency of the United States, a report to Congress on what was known about the Panamanian drug traffic. Um, this was, re was read aloud to the assembled 100 senators. I was honored to be one of the staffers uh, who was sitting in on that session for two days. And it certainly enabled an airing of the issue, which was needed. Um, it was determined after two days of debate that some things were relevant and vital, other things were not. Um, but it was an essential issue for the Senate to contend with. And again, it was Senator Dole who first raised this issue and was responsible for ensuring at least that the issue was looked at and, and debated and discussed. And I think he should be given credit for, for having done that. 
just as a final footnote, it was about 10 years later that Noriega was arrested uh, and found guilty of drug trafficking. This was following the United States invasion of Panama when we went in and basically cleaned out that rat nest. And Noriega was brought to justice and even to this day remains in jail uh, for having been actively engaged in drug trafficking. The Torrios brothers were never implicated. Omar Torrios was killed in a helicopter crash uh, not too many years afterwards, as I recall. And I think the circumstances of that were never entirely uh, cleared up. His brother, I think, may have gone to jail at some point uh, for a period of time on drug-related charges. It was clearly a nasty government, and it was right for American politicians and policymakers to question the conditions and terms under which we would would uh, return the canal, because no one knew what the government of Panama would be like in 1997, certainly not in 1977, but there was legitimate concern that you know we could be giving a vital national asset back to a very corrupt uh, regime that could have been even far worse in 97 than it was in 77. So who forced the Carter administration to uh, adhere to the 99-year term rather than an earlier uh, turnover of the canal? Well, there was a lease. You know, right after the Spanish-American War in 1898, there was a 99-year lease that was negotiated with the new government of Panama at that time. So there never was any question about an early return of the canal. It was simply that this was an issue that no one felt. The, the Panamanian government in 1976 and 77 was putting pressure on the American government to enter into negotiations and to, to resolve the transition issue then and there. They didn't want to wait until 1997. They recognized they had to wait till, till 97 for the actual handover, but they wanted to resolve the terms, including payments, uh, rental, you know, all the peripheral terms. They wanted to resolve that in 77. And that's when the Carter administration sent Ellsworth Bunker and Saul Linowitz and some others uh, to the table and uh, hammered out what we clearly felt was a very carelessly and hurriedly prepared treaty that did have a lot of defects and weaknesses which I think were ultimately resolved and cleared up by intense Senate interest in the issue. When you were working on this particular issue, uh, as a staffer in Dole's office, were you spending a lot of time interacting with other staff? experts in foreign policy in yes. the Senate community, and how, how did those relationships evolve and develop? And There was a very close working relationship between Senator Dole's office and uh, most of the other Republican uh, offices, and it was at the staff level on a daily basis, of course. But there was a, a coterie of Republican senators who always sponsored and co-sponsored legislation together. Um, uh, Bob Griffin, Jesse Helms, Barry Goldwater, um, uh, Deconcini, uh, not Deconcini, but um, Domenici, 
who always supported each other on legislative initiatives. And I worked with the staff members in those offices and others on a regular daily basis. We helped each other out. We shared information that we, we picked up. We, we noodled out uh, 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 creative approaches to nettle some issues. And um, ultimately, then, of course, it would be among the senators themselves to, to, uh, to uh, work out the details on the floor of the Senate, the amendments and what have you, to craft the final legislation. Uh, and in those days, it was difficult to get a, a uh, majority of votes on Republican-initiated legislation of any kind, either bills or amendments. There simply were not enough Republicans. I think in those days we had probably, it must have been 37, 38 Republican senators. And to try to contend with and, and overcome Democratic Party opposition um, on any Republican proposal was an uphill battle, to say the least. But to the credit of people like Senator Dole, Barry Goldwater, um, I think Jesse Helms, in my opinion, although... Often he was a little far out on the edge, but, but there were responsible efforts by Republican senators to, to keep uh, 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 final legislative policy uh, laws somewhere in the middle of the road. You know, I've always said you have to have extremes on both ends. You have pulling and pushing on both extremes to end up somewhere in the middle. And I really think down deep that's where the senator wanted to be, although he was often with that, that right wing that was pulling in that direction. But everyone knew that ultimately final uh, laws that were passed and enacted would, would be somewhere in the middle to the benefit of the American people. At the same time, I suppose, in those days, uh, there were some Republicans who were likely to wander off the plantation occasionally, right? Occasionally. Occasionally, we had our uh, we had our um, uh, more liberal Republican uh, senators uh, who would uh, occasionally side with the Democrats. But Republicans were such an endangered species in, in those days that there weren't many. I, I, I think of Ed Brooks from uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, he certainly was a, a Republican who often voted with the Democratic majority, but. As, on the whole, I think Republicans saw themselves in, as an endangered species and really stuck together on all but the most extreme uh, uh, right-wing proposals. Good. We need to stop there. All right, we're rolling again. Um, so... Let's move on to Korea then. Yes. Well, during the 1976 presidential campaign, Jimmy Carter had pledged that if he were elected president, he would withdraw the 40,000 U.S. troops still stationed in South Korea some uh, uh, 30 years nearly after the end of the Korean War. This, I think, was a concept that troubled uh, a large number of American people, not just Republican conservatives, but South Korea had always been seen as kind of the tripwire uh, for World War III. I mean, you had uh, 
communist and non-communist forces literally eyeball to eyeball on the border between North Korea and South Korea. And of course, the, the Soviet and Chinese communist involvement with the North Korean government, et cetera, et cetera. So during the Cold War period, uh, there was uh, an intensity of, of uh, national security concern about the Korean Peninsula. And the idea of withdrawing all American forces, which after all had been a major component of the uh, stability of the South Korean Peninsula for nearly 30 years, was a matter of great concern to many people. What brought this to a head was uh, not long after he was inaugurated as president, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, did say that he was prepared to withdraw all American forces from South Korea. The um, gentleman who was at that time the U.S. Uh, chief of staff for U.S. Uh, uh, troops in South Korea, uh, Major General John Singlob, um, confronted the president publicly about this. He said that in, in his judgment, if U.S. troops were withdrawn from South Korea, it quite likely would lead to war. Uh, this was a direct uh, contradiction to the president's uh, assurance to the American people that uh, it would mean nothing. Uh, president Carter fired uh, General Singlob, um, uh, asked that he be relieved of his duties. I still remember the morning after that occurred. Senator Dole was in high dudgeon about this. And of course, he was a veteran. You know, national security and the, the welfare of American troops and where they were stationed and for what reason was, I think, always a matter of great concern to Senator Dole. He came to me the morning that the firing of General Singlob was all over the newspapers, and he said, this isn't right. The president is attempting to muzzle the military, and these, after all, are the experts who know best about the national security. You know, what? how much does Jimmy Carter know about uh, national security? He was the governor of Georgia. He said, I want to prepare a telegram this morning to be sent directly to General Singlob, and I still remember the exact quote. He said, I want to tell General Singlob, thank you for standing up for America, quote, unquote. So I prepared the tele telegram, we sent it off. Uh, General Singlob did receive it, sent a very nice note of appreciation to the senator afterwards. Uh, of course, it could not undo what had been done in terms of, of his being relieved of, of duty. But not long afterwards, at the invitation of Senator Dole and members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, General Singlob was invited to Capitol Hill and asked to testify about his personal feelings about withdrawing U.S. troops from South Korea. And he made it quite clear that in his judgment as a career military officer, it could have a devastating impact on Cold War stability on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, not too long afterwards, Senator Dole, together with a handful of other Republican senators, um, offered a uh, joint resolution of Congress asking that those troops not be withdrawn 
from South Korea. And it became such a, a, a volatile national issue in the news media, and uh, even as a partisan issue between Democrats and Republicans, that ultimately President Carter was forced, in a sense, to back down from his initiative. And as a result, yet today, there are still some 30,000 American troops stationed in South Korea. And I think given our experience with North Korea over the years, even after the fall of the Soviet Union, the quirkiness, the total unpredictability and, and illogic of the government of North Korea, in my opinion, and I suspect in the opinion of most policy uh, uh, makers, uh, is that it was wise for the United States to keep those troops there. Uh, it was the, the barrier that prevented North Korea from doing anything irrational that could indeed have, have uh, launched a, a major conflict between East and West in uh, what was a very tense atmosphere during the Cold War. So staying in that region of the world, uh, the next issue is Taiwan. China, Taiwan. <clears throat> the Republic of China on Taiwan, a fiercely non-communist, anti-communist government, had been a treaty ally, military treaty ally, and of course a diplomatic ally of the United States ever since the outbreak of the Korean War. So as of 1977, nearly 30 years. Over the over time in the early 1970s, as Richard Nixon made his groundbreaking trip to uh, what was then known as Red China or Communist China, uh, throughout the Nixon administration and even through the Ford administration, there was a lot of bantering about the need to recognize reality, so to speak, and uh, to extend diplomatic relations to the People's Republic of China, which would inevitably require breaking relations with Republic of China on Taiwan. Uh, Peking itself said, if you want to have diplomatic relations with us, you must first break relations with the Republic of China. Well, they didn't say Republic, they said with Taiwan. There were a lot of implications of this. You know, China, uh, Taiwan was uh, our fifth or sixth largest trading partner in those days. We had the uh, Mutual Defense Treaty, uh, which had existed since 1954. Uh, there was, of course, the political uh, relationship. Uh, they were a gradually democratizing country. I think the idea of arbitrarily terminating or breaking relations with a society like that in order to establish them with a communist country was anathema to large segments of the American public, including with many Democrats, quite frankly. But again, Jimmy Carter had pledged during the 76 campaign that if he were elected president, he would no longer deny the reality that China was really the People's Republic and not Taiwan. And um, by early 78, um, there were rumors circulating that private negotiations were underway between the Carter administration and officials of mainland China on a means and timing 
for establishing diplomatic relations. Under the Constitution, the President does have the right to decide when and where and how to establish diplomatic relations with other countries. But there was a strong sense, again because of the economic and security and political shared interests between Taiwan and the United States, that this should not happen in, an, in a, any abrupt and uh, uh, unthoughtful fashion, that Congress certainly should have some kind of input or role or say in any kind of major foreign policy decision of that sort. And so, as I say, we had been hearing rumors. Some of these were circulating in the newspapers. Others were coming to us through uh, some intelligence sources in the U U.S. government that there were talks underway between Washington and Peking on doing something very abrupt and um, probably without any consultation with Congress beforehand. So, uh, Senator Dole, to his credit, um, introduced a joint resolution of Congress <clears throat> in the early summer of 1978. He was joined in that by the senator from Florida, Richard Stone, uh, hence uh, became known as the Dole Stone Resolution. And it stipulated quite clearly that um, given the broad range of shared interests between the people of Taiwan and the people of the United States, there should be no uh, uh, major change in relationships without full prior consultation with Congress by the White House. And initially I think this was viewed as just kind of a uh, uh, some kind of a knee-jerk uh, uh, initiative by you know a junior senator from Kansas. But lo and behold, uh, Senators Dole and Stone offered this resolution as an amendment in July of 1978 to, an, to a uh, National Security Assistance Authorization Bill. And a, uh, uh, a, uh, a vote was taken, not, not, a, not a voice vote, but a roll call vote was taken in the Senate. And it passed unanimously. It was a 94 to 0 vote. Uh, there were six senators who were not present the day that, that the uh, amendment was voted on. But senators like Ted Kennedy uh, and Birch Bayh, some of the most liberal senators uh, at that time, supported the Dole Stone Resolution. I mean, I think every state in the country had trading relations of some kind with Taiwan. And people just did not like the idea. Yeah, you know, there is a certain reality, but how much are we willing to sacrifice or give up in terms of establishing diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China? So a line was drawn, so to speak. The Senate was on record unanimously as telling the White House, you know, if you're cooking something up that we're not aware of, Forget it. You know, you need to come to us and have full prior consultation before doing something abrupt and 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 unseemly. Uh, this was in July of 1978, and what we learned later was that this seriously set back the Carter administration's plans. They had actually intended to break relations with Taiwan and establish them with the PRC early in the fall of 78. 
It was to be, you know, just a, a, a sudden announcement of fait accompli. Uh, what we learned later was that this unanimous uh, uh, Senate uh, uh, amendment, which could not be ignored by the White House, set back plans uh, seriously. But to make a long story short, um, uh, there continued to be uh, behind-the-scenes efforts by the Carter administration to decide how to work all of this out. And while Congress was in recess for the Christmas holiday in this late December of 1978, President Carter went on nationwide television and announced to the American people that effective January 1st, 1979, he was going to arbitrarily establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China and that that would necessarily mean that we would be terminating not only diplomatic relations but our mutual defense treaty with the Republic of China on Taiwan. Needless to say, Congress went ballistic. Senator Dole called me at home that evening, and he said, did you see what the president announced on television? And I said, I did. And he said, this, this is contrary to what we did uh, in July. He said, you know, I want to issue an immediate press release tonight uh, taking the administration to task for doing this without the prior consultation with Congress that was mandated legislatively six months ago. What we later found out was that the White House thought they had finessed this by making a phone call a couple of hours beforehand to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman and minority leader and also the House Foreign uh, Affairs uh, Committee chairman and minority leader and tipping them off that in two hours the president's going to go on nationwide TV. The White House felt this would fulfill their obligation for full prior consultation with Congress prior to doing so. And of course, this was nothing at all like what Congress had had intended. To make a long story short, again, um, the, the transition was not quite as smooth as the Carter administration has, had hoped. The president did have the authority under the Constitution to do what he announced, effective January 1st. But the the reaction by both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill, both Senate and House of Representatives, was so immediate and so so rabid that um, the White House immediately began looking for some some way of of accommodating the, 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 the violent reaction of Congress. This led to creation of the Taiwan Relations Act in April of 1979, which among other things stipulated, and, and it was an act of Congress which became the law of the land, stipulated that um, the United States would continue, continue to uh, uh, have serious and grave concern about the security and stability of Taiwan, even though the mutual defense treaty would be terminated by presidential edict, that it would st- remain a matter of great concern to the United States, the future security, and that the United States also intended to continue a very uh, vibrant uh, uh, commercial relationship uh, with Taiwan. 
uh, and that even though we did not have a security treaty, that we would continue to sell defense weapons to Taiwan. This irritated the administration to no end. It was, uh, you know, a, a poke in the eye of the, ch of the mainland Chinese because they didn't want any sort of continuing relationship between the United States and Taiwan. But Congress, in its wisdom, with the leadership of Senator Dole and others, stipulated this isn't going to happen. There will be a continuing relationship, albeit sub-diplomatic, with the people of Taiwan who have been our loyal friends and treaty allies you know, for three decades. And, um, you know, in hindsight, here we are uh, almost 30 years after that, um, we still today, uh, Taiwan today is a democratic society. They transitioned during the 80s uh, towards full uh, uh, democratization and democratic institutions. We have a, uh, a very vibrant trading relationship with the people of Taiwan and their security and stability has been protected in a strong sense by the commitments that were made under the Taiwan Relations Act. And the act, again, just to underscore, was an outgrowth of the Dole Stone Amendment, which was uh, uh, proposed and passed by such an overwhelming uh, and non-ignorable majority in the summer of 78. Good review. I asked you if you served as sort of the mentor to Senator Dole in terms of his becoming more active in foreign relations issues and so forth, and you said you did have some role to play there. Can you just describe that a bit? Well, to some extent, maybe more of a sounding board. I mean, he did come to me and say, you know, I, withdrawing American troops from South Korea is a terrible idea, and the president has fired the one general who would stand up and, and say, this, this is a, a threat to the United States. And the senator did come to me and say that he wanted to have a profile on the Panama Canal Treaty debate. Um, and, uh, of course, the state of Kansas and, and much of the United States had uh, strong uh, working relationships with Taiwan. And uh, no one wanted to see Taiwan uh, forcibly absorbed by the People's Republic of China. Uh, so I would, I you know, would would have to say that the senator, in most cases, you know, he he was he was the 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 thinking behind these processes. Um, he he was the un intellectual initiator of these uh, legislative items. He had the vision, in a sense, of of knowing that. Um, there were certain issues that were fundamentally vital to the, the interests of the American people and the security of the nation. But then, as most congressmen do, they come to their staff and they say, work, work it out for me. Work it up for me. You know, how do we square this circle? You, you come up, you know, you've got the time. You devise the approach. Let me take a look at it. Let me tool it and retool it to the point where I'm comfortable with it and where I think it, it, it accomplishes what we want to accomplish. And I just feel very privileged to have been, you know, a, a senior staff member that he came to and, and looked to 
for guidance and um, uh, specific ideas on how to approach these issues. And then to have the opportunity to work with him to shape and tool these to a point where in his far greater experience than mine, they would make sense in terms of national policy and uh, accomplish the specific objectives that he wanted to accomplish, both as a Republican senator, but as a, as a national statesman. Were there others in his office who had, were, you were sharing this portfolio with or, or not? Not on foreign policy. Uh, from 1977 uh, into 1979, I had the, the chief responsibility for that. Um, uh, and on national security issues, uh, you know, I think about the uh, U.S.-Soviet uh, uh, strategic arms limitation treaty, things of that sort. There were others uh, with stronger um, defense and military experience and background that I worked with on, on issues like that. But the ones that I feel proudest of are those that, where I had the, 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 I had the duty, I had the responsibility to, to, um, to take his vision and his objective and devise ways of, of, of proposing that as a sensible legislative initiative, which he was comfortable with, and then to prepare the floor statements um, the testimony, and he did go before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and testify on the Panama Canal Treaty and the amendments that he had proposed. Uh, that was rather unusual for a committee to ask a, an individual senator to come and testify. Um, uh, that, that was not normally done. So, I, you know, I think it helped him establish the profile and the reputation that he wanted as a statesman, but also as a, um, an, you know, an ambitious politician uh, with a future um, to place him where he wanted to be on issues of national prominence and significance for the welfare of the United States. So what prompted your departure from this high place. <laughs> Probably burnout after five and a half years. Uh, it, it's grueling to work uh, on any congressional staff. I mean, just the pace of legislative activity, the, the intellectual uh, requirements, um, the long hours, typically six days, sometimes seven days a week. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult thing to to do that for most people for very many years. And I know Senator Dole's staff members typically served him fewer than five years. It was unusual, at least in those days, for a staff member to stay four, five, six years. That was, that was quite uncommon. But I, you know, I had such a strong respect and admiration for the senator that I I toughed it out as long as I could, but certainly after almost six years, uh, you know, I was interested in, in uh, getting married, starting a family, carrying my career on to the next stage. I did leave the Hill and went uh, to, the, uh, to a think tank, actually, the Center for Strategic and International Studies and later the State Department, where I had uh, uh, additional 
opportunities to work on foreign policy issues. And, uh, but I, I never lost touch with the senator. Um, from time to time, uh, we would uh, see each other in various forums. He always greeted me very warmly. And then I was very honored during the 1996 presidential campaign when he ran as the Republican nominee. I was very honored that he asked me to serve uh, as an advisor on his foreign policy uh, uh, tasking team. Paula Dobryansky, who was the leader of that team, uh, I was uh, in regular contact with her, particularly on issues relating to East Asia. And I prepared a number of um, uh, policy briefing papers for the senator, uh, uh, contributed to some campaign speeches that he made during that campaign, and after the election received a very nice letter of appreciation from him. What kind of a president do you think he would have made, and in particular in terms of foreign policy issues? You know, it's difficult to say in hindsight because it would have depended so much on events uh, around the world, some of which would have transpired differently had he been president than, than uh, Bill Clinton. Um, I think, though, that he would have offered some creative approaches to nettle some issues. Perhaps he would have been given that opportunity that he always wanted to have to be the great accommodator, to bring together the, the fringe elements of both parties uh, to a common meeting ground where um, they could agree on approaches to policy issues, both domestic and foreign, that would be in the best interests of the American people, uh, the welfare of the United States. It would have given him an opportunity to have placed his imprimatur on the history of this country in a way that most likely would have been different than that of Bill Clinton, where it would have put us in terms of the Middle East, um, issues like Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, who can say with any certainty. But he certainly would have been a very decisive and deliberate person. He would have had, he would have had uh, highly capable people advising him on issues of that sort. But I think his instincts as a, as a veteran, as a World War II veteran, um, and his instincts for the mentality and uh, popularity of issues uh, of, of the mainstream uh, American people uh, in the Midwest, uh, certainly, his instincts would have led him in directions that could have only benefited the country as a whole in ways that would not have been ideological or particularly partisan. But, uh, I mean, there are always going to be uh, differences of opinion about approaches to any particular issue. But I think his, his, his uh, desire and instinct was to be someone who could establish a a mainstream of thinking that could bring uh, divisive elements politically and ideologically together in, in, in a harmony that would work to the benefit of the country. Do you think that that kind of perspective uh, still has a chance of surviving in this country, considering the degree of, 
of hostility and polarization that has occurred? You know, there's more polarization on Capitol Hill today than, than I ever witnessed. And we thought things were pretty divisive when I was on Capitol Hill. But the rancor and the, the, the uh, lack of civility uh, that we see more and more of, uh, resulting in uh, lack of action in many cases on important legislation, you know, has reached an extent that would have certainly been startling to members of Congress in 1975. Um, it's not an atmosphere that many would have found understandable or respectable 30 years ago because people like Senator Dole, you know, appreciated the need for comity and accord uh, beyond simple partisan conflict on a day-to-day -day basis. And I really believe that, um, you know, if we had more members of Congress today like Senator Dole and, and many of those colleagues, Barry Goldwater, um, that he worked with in those days, uh, certainly a lot more would be achieved and I think probably in a less hostile uh, climate on Capitol Hill. Men of his generation, you know, to quote Tom Brokaw, you know, they were the greatest generation. They were, they were forged by the Depression and World War II and had an intense, in-depth uh, desire to promote the welfare of the country. Certainly Senator Dole, being the decent and, and highly ethical person that I knew him to be on a personal as well as public basis, you know, he knew where where the uh, where the uh, where the water stopped in terms of partisanship, you know, you you fight your battles, but then at the end of the day, you close ranks and you come together for the benefit of the American people. And I think he knew the perimeters that are not to be crossed in terms of of creating such a a divisive, hostile, acrimonious environment that very little gets accomplished and really leaves everyone. Uh, you know, very, uh, very uh, upset and in, an, in a non-accommodating mood. And he would not, I think, have wanted to work in that kind of an atmosphere. Good. Are we leaving anything unsaid at this point, do you think? Not that I can think about. But if, if there is, I'll stick a sentence or two in in the transcript. <laughs> I, you know, I would only add, um, we haven't mentioned Elizabeth Dole. I think, I think she's a charming person, that she brought a lot to him, uh, I have to, to believe, to his, to his personal life. Um, um, she was considerably younger than he was, but a very bright and ambitious and cordial uh, person, still is, of course. But I, I would suspect that she brought an element to his personal life which helped to sustain him through the grueling political and, and, and policy-making uh, challenges that he had to deal with. You know, having a helpmate of that sort, someone to go home to at the end of the day, and, and of course she had a professional career in her own right as a Federal Trade Commissioner at the time they were married, 
I think she had, a, 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 in hindsight, a very uh, important dimension to him as a person that only improved upon his statesman-like character. And uh, she certainly was a, a, uh, a very wonderful person to his staff members. Uh, she would arrange the staff Christmas parties uh, in the early years when they were first married um, and was uh, just very accommodating. I had the, the privilege of escorting her parents and his parents to and from the wedding events uh, when they were married in 1975. They entrusted me <laughs> with the safety and welfare and, and getting their parents where they needed to be on time to the rehearsal dinners and and of course to the wedding and, and to the reception afterwards. And uh, uh, all four of their parents were very charming people and I can see, you know, see where uh, the character was built in both of those individuals. Um, I, I, I don't have any contact with her anymore as a United States Senator, but uh, certainly in those days she was a charming person and I think a, 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 just a major asset to his career.